0: My name is Matthew. I'm the student ministries pastor here at Connection Point Church, and I'm happy to be here with you guys for the last couple of weeks, pretty much all of July and now into August, we've been talking about the book of James, which is a letter in the New Testament written to the church in Jerusalem that James was leading at that time. And it wasn't just a letter to Jerusalem. It was a letter to all of the Christian communities that were starting to sprout up at this time. It's shortly after Jesus's life. And so the church was just starting to conglomerate and become its own kind of institution. And so James writes this letter as kind of like, if you remember, with newspapers, an open letter to the editor. He was writing a letter to Jerusalem, but it was for everyone. And the goal was to take the lessons of Christ and make them extremely practical and contextualized to the life of Jerusalem and the early churches that were starting to uh, sprout up. And so for the last few weeks, we've talked about the first three chapters. On the first chapter, we talked about how our faith needs to remain resilient, even amidst difficulties and trials and the tumultuous things of this life. We talked about the wisdom that is required and the ways that we can listen, not only to understand each other, but to understand God as well. Then in James chapter 2, we talked about the idea of Christians not showing favoritism. Not treating some people better than others because of their wealth or because of their status, but rather seeking to love everyone individually and equally. And then the second half of the chapter, James makes a strong point that we are supposed to not just talk about our faith, but it's supposed to impact and change our lives, right? We're supposed to live out the beliefs that we have in Christ. The beliefs we just sang about shouldn't be something we just talk about. It should change us. And then last week, Pastor Sarah talked about James chapter 3 and the topic of taming the tongue. Because the truth is, our words have power. What we say can build up or it can destroy, it can lift people up or tear them down. The tongue is a very powerful thing, and James talks a lot about thinking about our words because our words are often a window into our soul. Right? They give insight into what is actually going on in our heart and in our mind. And so today, we're going to talk about James chapter 4. Next week, we'll finish off James chapter 5. And we're going to look at the entire chapter today. It's a lot of reading. But one of the things that James tries to do in chapter 4 is he offers a smattering of wisdom. There's a lot of stuff he covers. Arguably, we could spend a ton of time on James chapter 4 because it seems a bit disjointed at times. He just seems to pepper in thoughts and wise sayings. But what James is trying to do is offer warning signs and course corrections to a community that while it's trying to follow Christ is getting a little off track. They're getting so caught up in the mundanity daily grind of following Jesus, you know, working in their career, enjoying their families, that they're missing the point. And they're starting to get off track with their idolatry, with their judgment, and also with the fact that they are living te- uh, t- uh, temporary lives. And so James offers these course corrections that we're going to look at in a moment. But I heard the story recently, and I want to share it with you. There's a guy in the 1800s, his name was Alfred Nobel. This is a picture of him, so you get an idea. And he was the inventor of dynamite. And in the 1800s, he patented this idea and made millions. And in the 1800s, we're talking about like 30 to $50 million. It's a lot of money. And in the mid to late 1800s, like in the 1860s, the newspaper ran an article about his obituary, and it was less than kind. It recounted that today a merchant of death has died. A man who has made his millions on the back of war has passed away. There's a big problem, though. Alfred Nobel hadn't died yet. His brother had died, and the newspaper misunderstood and ran his obituary instead. So imagine the shock, you wake up and you read about your own death over your cup of coffee. But he had a split second moment where he realizes this is not how I want to be remembered. I don't want to be remembered as a merchant of death. I don't want to be remembered for the invention of dynamite. I want to be remembered as someone who made peace. And so he took all of his money and he allocated it into a fund that would be dispersed to scientists, physicians, um, engineers, entrepreneurs who made contributions to peace in society and in their community. It's where we got the Nobel Peace Prize. And his memory now is not the fact that he made dynamite, it's his peace that he's tried to instill in community. At the end of his life, he reflected and said, every man should have the ability to rewrite their epitaph. Every man should have the ability to change their legacy mid-sentence. He got that unique opportunity, and I think we do as well. James is offering an opportunity for the early church to consider their epitaph, to consider the path that they're on, because the path that they're on is not leading them closer to Christ. It's leading them to arrogance. It's leading them to idolatry, and it's leading them to division. And so he offers course corrections, ways to right the ship. And my question for us today is what do we want our course corrections to be? What are the ways that we need to right the ship? So today I'm going to look at the entirety of chapter 4. It's 17 verses. It's a lot of reading. Stick with me. It's going to be good. I'll highlight specific passages, but I want to tell you upfront what the three course corrections are, just so you have an idea. The first thing that James brings up is that we are to worship God alone, not be a friend of the world, not be a slave to our desires. The second course correction he talks about is we're to love our neighbor, not slander them. And the final one is we are to find our hope and our worship in a timeless God, not temporary things. Those are my three points today. So we're going to look at James chapter four and then talk about them. This is what it says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that he, God, jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but rather sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this city or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's a sin for them. James covers a lot of ground in this one chapter. And at times it feels like he's just piecing together almost like a piecemeal chapter of wisdom. But if you understand the ways that these, this Christian community was drifting away, it starts to make a little more sense. James is talking about their idolatry in some ways. That's why our first course correction is we're called to worship God alone rather than be friends of the world. If you noticed in verse 4, he uses this very strong language. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And it raises a question of, does it mean that pure enjoyment or engagement in culture, the arts, music, food, relationships, does that mean that that's sinful? Is James ass- assuming that the best Process and way forward is to be almost puritanical and escapist. To hang back while the world figures it out, to not engage in culture and just to leave that all in the world. And that's not what he's suggesting. What he is suggesting is not conflating our own desires to idolatry, it's not desiring creation so much that we worship it over the creator. James is hearkening back and kind of hinting at things that even Jesus said. Jesus said, we can't serve two masters, can't serve God and money. And I think you could probably easily take out the money and put in any other thing. Like you can't serve God and your job. You can't serve God and your gadgets and toys. You can't serve God and your relationships, right? Because what he's talking about is what has the center of your life? What do you worship? there's this part in the Old Testament all throughout the history of the people of Israel where they have this up and down relationship with God because God had entered into what was known as a covenant bond with the people of Israel. And a covenant is like a contract, but more intimate than that. That's why we refer to marriages as a covenant because it's vows between two parties coming together, cleaving themselves together. And so God makes a covenant with the people of Israel to say, I will be with you. I will protect you. I will guide you. But just like in a marriage, there are stipulations, right? And God's stipulation is loyalty and fidelity. Right? I will be in covenant with you, but you shall worship no other gods before me. Because that day and age, it was very common to worship gods for all sorts of different things. There was gods for the moon or the sun or the harvest, fertility, the marketplace. Everyone had a different God for different reasons, doing different things. And so the radical concept that God approaches the people of Israel with is instead of worshiping all of these other gods, you'll worship just me. And the people of Israel did a mediocre job. They had ups and downs where they'd be worshiping God at a high and then go to making golden calves or making icons or making little trinkets, things to remind them of other gods. And we look at this story and we say, well, that would never be me. I'm so enlightened, I'm so modern, I would never have statues and shrines to these gods that I worship, and maybe rightfully so. But idolatry is not confined to just little statues. The definition of idolatry is anything that removes God from the center of our lives, removes God from worship in our lives, and lifts that or elevates it above where it should be. Pastor Tyler Staten put it that idolatry can often look like taking good things and making them God things. Taking these really important things and making them the most important thing. The only thing in our lives. And so James is saying that it is adultery, it is infidelity to God and our relationship with God when we favor the world above him. He's not saying that enjoying your relationships or enjoying culture or enjoying certain aspects of the world are a problem. It's when we let that turn into idolatry in our lives. It's so when we conflate that to a relationship above the creator. So what's the solution? What does James offer as the solution to the problem? He says this, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Submit to God. Submission can look like a lot of different things for a lot of us Submitting to God means starting a relationship with God, entering into a faith journey with God. But submitting can also look like the daily intentional decisions to read your Bible. Submitting to God can also look like praying and coming to church and being in community with other people, treating people with love and submission to God can look like living out the way of Christ in our homes, in our communities, in our workplaces. It means being conformed into Christ's likeness That's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to be a friend of the world. We're not supposed to idolize the things of this world. We're supposed to worship God and God alone. That's the first way that James reminds the people to get back on track. The second is that we are to love our neighbor, not slander them. If you notice in verse 11 and 12, James makes this point. He says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? James is kind of mimicking some things that Jesus says. Maybe you read that passage and it strikes a chord and it seems familiar. Well, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7 of Matthew, he says in the first five verses, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is acknowledging that it is ludicrous to look at another person's sin and say, look at you, you broken sinner, as if we're not. It is hypocritical to uphold ourselves to a self-righteous standard as if we are not also sinful and broken people. He's acknowledging that sometimes before we judge another person, we need to deal with the own, like our own sin and our own problems before we try to go deal with the problems of others. And James similarly says, who are we? To judge, to slander, to gossip, to speak ill of someone. And there's a lot of reasons why. Gossip and slander are destructive. One way it's destructive is it's destructive to our communities. If you've ever been in a community that is having active gossip or slander or people talking behind other people's backs, you know that the community and the trust starts to dissipate over time. Right? People stop trusting people who talk about other people behind their backs because they know eventually it'll happen to them. But similarly, another area is that it is destructive to our witness as Christians. In the 21st century, one of the main ways that the Western church is known by non-Christians is we're known as hypocritical and judgmental. We're known by what we're against, not what we're for. And and what we're told in the Bible regularly is that we're called to love. Jesus never actually calls us to judge other people. Sometimes we put ourselves in the place of being the bouncers at heaven's gates, deciding who is worth saving and who is worth um, entering heaven. As if we get to sit in that spot. And if you notice, James says, there's only one lawgiver and one judge. There's only one person who sits above and is, sits above the sin in our lives and was sinless themselves and can speak to that. And it's not us. A caveat I want to make, though, is this does not mean that we don't speak out against injustice. This does not mean that we don't correct, that we don't guide. But what it does mean is that we do th- so through truth and love. Because what Jesus commands us to do is love God and love our neighbor. And so when we do speak about uh, corrective issues, we do so because we love the other person. We want to uplift that person. We want to extend the same grace that has been extended to us. Not because we want to tear them down or be superior to them. The second course correction that James offers is that we are to love our neighbor, not slander them. The third is arguably the most interesting to me is that we find hope in a timeless God, not our temporary lives, not the temporary things that go on. If you notice at the, in verse 13 and 14 of James 4, he says this, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, and carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James is talking about how the people in that day had gotten to a point where they were so arrogantly assuming that they would make all of these plans and ideas about where they would make their money and where they would go do their business and all the accolades and promotions they would receive. And so James gives them a little bit of a gut check and says, you're striving after all of these things, but you need to remember you're still missed. You're here one moment and gone the next. It's very similar to something we read in an Old Testament text called the book of Ecclesiastes. It's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. You'll find it right near Psalms and Proverbs. And it was written by a guy named Solomon. You may have heard of him. He is known as one of the wisest people to ever live. And Solomon writes this text in a pretty interesting way where he approaches the idea of wisdom and trying to like, what do we find our purpose and our value in? But through a conversation, rather than just writing out, this is where we find wisdom. He instead posits a conversation between a teacher and a student. And the teacher's trying to dispel all of this wisdom and explain all of this information to the student. And so we see in verse two, this really uplifting line, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Sounds like a 19-year-old nihilist, doesn't it? Like, ah, everything is worthless. And if you read it at face value, that's all you get from it. But the truth is, there's a word at play. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't even, you know, say I am. But what I want you to know is there's a Hebrew word that actually makes a lot of sense here. The word that's being used doesn't necessarily directly translate to meaningless. What it actually translates to is vapor. It's a Hebrew word, heval or hevel. It means vapor, mist, a chasing after the wind. So if you read that line, you read it as vapor, vapor, says the teacher. Everything is vapor. He's not saying that things are meaningless necessarily. He's saying that they're here one moment and then they're gone. They're temporary. And so for 12 chapters, the writer of Ecclesiastes goes on this long, depressing dirge, explaining all of these things that people try to find their purpose and their value in. Talks about money and jobs and talks about relationships. And ultimately he talks about our possessions And even if you remember, if you've ever heard the line, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Have you ever heard that philosophical concept? It comes from the idea of hedonism. He even touches on that a little bit. Like, what if we just eat ourselves to death? Because there's no tomorrow, why not? And for 12 chapters, he goes through all of these things. And at the end of the book, he gets this final apex moment. And this is what he says. He says, now that all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. When everything is considered, when all the wisdom of the wisest person is applied, the only thing worth putting our hope in is God. The only thing that's timeless, that's eternal, is God. Everything else is vapor. It does not mean those things are bad. It doesn't even mean those things aren't worth you know, striving after, but it's never supposed to be the thing we find our hope, our purpose, and our worship in because they're temporary. James is noticing that the people of God are getting so caught up in their work, in their reputations, in their family life, that they're missing the point as Christ all along. It was always about finding our hope in God. There's this idea that my friend and I love, it's a Latin phrase that is memento mori, and it means you are going to die. But there's often a phrase attached to it that is memento vivere, which means, so how will you live? It's the acknowledgement that our life on this earth is temporary. When I was eight years old, I remember thinking 30 is ancient. And now I'm almost 30 and I'm like, 70 is not that old. I mean, I don't want to live to 100, but I'd like to get to 75, you know? Life on this earth is temporary. What we're striving after is a life transformed and shaped after who Christ is. The only timeless thing. I love in the Westminster Confession, their small catechism, they ask this question to start it off and they kind of answer it themselves. They ask, what is man's chief end? What's the goal of life? And this is their solution. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's not to make money. Money's not bad. It's neutral. It can be good or it can be bad. But our goal in life is not to make money. It's not to be successful. It's not to strive after all of these experiences and memories. Again, none of that's bad. But for so many people, that becomes the entire point of their life. They get so caught up in the individual trees that they miss the forest. Our goal in life is to glorify God first and foremost above all and to enjoy him forever. Our very lives are supposed to be glorifying to God because we have submitted and committed our lives to following Christ. So how will you be remembered? How do you want to be remembered? What are the course corrections that you need to make in your life and your faith James offers a couple here, and all throughout his book, he's talking about Christ-likeness being the point. We're supposed to be making intentional steps and striving after who Christ is, and so these are just a few course corrections. Are we trying to worship God, or are we worshiping the world? David Foster Wallace was an American novelist known as one of the best novelists of the 1990s, and in 2005, he gave a commencement address at Kenyon College. It ended up becoming one of the things he was most famous for. And in it, he said, and David Foster Wallace was an agnostic, didn't believe in God, believed in something, but didn't really believe in any such religion. He said, we all worship something, even atheists. You just might not believe in one particular divine being, but we all worship something. So what are you worshiping? Do we worship God or do we worship the world? Because we all worship something. The second course correction is, do we love our neighbor? Do we actually love our neighbor? Do we want to see our neighbor, even if they're not like us, lifted up and brought closer to who Christ is? Or do we just want to slander them? And I would argue that we don't intentionally go out of our way to gossip and to talk bad about people. But I think it's so easy to slip into that, to talk about things that are unnecessarily criticizing or unnecessarily undercutting And my question for us is, can Connection Point Church be known more by God's love, known more for what we are about, what we are for, than what we're against? Can we be a people? Can we be a community? Even if we can't be for all of the churches in America, can we be a community that loves so well that when people interact with us, they get to experience the love of Christ? So that we're not known by being judgmental and hypocritical. We're known for being the radically, ruthlessly loving people. Do we love our neighbor or do we slander them? And the final course correction is where do we find our hope? Do we find it in a timeless God or temporary things? Because I'll tell you right now, whatever you find your hope in will be the thing that you turn to in search of security and safety. If you're ever curious what you find yourself worshiping the most, what do you turn to when things start to fall apart? Are you turning to your bank account? Are you turning to all of the things that you've accrued in your life, your house, your possessions? Are you turning to specific relationships or are you turning to God? What do you seek your security and your safety in? Because that is what you find your hope in. And the truth is, all of the rest is vapor. God is the only eternal, timeless thing. So what do you find your hope in? We'll all be remembered for something But I pray that when we rewrite our epitaph, that it says that we are Christ followers first. That we are people conformed to Christ, not to the world. That we are people who love, not people who tear apart. That we are hopeful. Let's pray. God, I pray for this community. I pray for each of us as we take next steps in our faith. That every day that we're alive, we take next steps closer to you. That we become more like Jesus in the way that we act, in the way that we treat people, that we submit our lives to you first and foremost. So that our desires are shaped through the lens of Christ, not through the world. So that when we see our neighbor, we don't see someone who we're against. We see someone made in the image of God. May we be people who love over hate and choose kindness over division. Amen.